Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of MLOps Coffee Sessions. We have another exciting episode for all of you here today listening. I have Demetrios with me. Hey, Demetrios. What's happening, everybody? And with us today is Joel Gruss. Uh, you all are very familiar with Joel. He is the author of Data Science from Scratch and is currently a principal engineer focused on machine learning at Capital Group with experience at the Allen Institute, Google, Microsoft, and many other places. But most famously, all of you will certainly have heard of him from his talk at an O'Reilly conference about, I don't like notebooks. That prompted a lot of what many of us think today and, and, and question today about the value of notebooks. And we're very excited to dive deeper in with, with him about that and, and much more related to MLOps. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so just to kind of kick things off, you know, you were one of the earlier authors in the data science field with data science from scratch, which became a Bible quickly. Uh, you gave an early talk that got us thinking about what are we really trying to do with notebooks? And so I kind of want to ask you just to start, how did you get into the data science and machine learning world um, pretty to some degree early on in, in, in its entire evolution um, and how has your journey led you to where you are today? Yeah, so I've had a pretty long, uh, convoluted journey. But, you know, at a high level, I studied math, pure math, the kind that's not useful for much except proving theorems and, you know, coming up with conjectures and things like that. Uh, and I actually went to math grad school in a PhD program for a couple of years until I dropped out. Um, and this was way before data science. And so at the time, if you studied math, you know, the thing to do was quantitative finance. So I kind of got into quantitative finance, options, pricing, you know, financial risk, things like that, and, and spent a few years working uh, in that field. Uh, but I never really liked it that much. Um, and so I was working at a hedge fund, uh, let's say 2006, um, that sort of flamed out kind of spectacularly. Um, and I found myself with nothing to do. And I, I didn't really want to get back to the finance world. And so I was sort of at this turning point. Um, and th through the magic of uh, cronyism, I, I landed uh, kind of a business intelligence role uh, at a startup called Faircast, uh, which was an online travel site where the special sauce was that they did price predictions on airfares. So we think that the, you know, the lowest fare, or we know that the lowest fare is $200 for your trip, and we predict it's going up, so you should buy now. Or we, you know, we think the price is going down, so you'd be better off waiting. So my job there um, was not machine learning. It was not anything like that. It was writing SQL queries and building spreadsheets and making pivot tables. Um, and so there are a lot of SQL queries that need to be written, you know, how, and doing things like how correct are our predictions and, um, you know, uh, how do they affect our customers, things like that. Um, so it's kind of a proto, very light data analysis, data science type role. You know, we were doing machine learning, but we didn't even call the people who did wow. machine learning um, MLEs or data scientists, we call them data miners. Um, and they all had PhDs in computer science and they had basically built out all of their own machine learning toolkits, you know, in C++ to run on a Sun grid engine. So it was sort of a, a different time. And so I was there for a few years, it got acquired by Microsoft and I was there for a few years as well. Um, and then around, you know, 2011, I, I was still asking, you know, what do I really want to be doing? Um, and data science was just starting to become a thing. Um, and so I thought, you know, that seems very similar to what I've been doing and what I enjoy. Um, and, and so I'm going to try and move myself in that direction. In 2011, it sounds comical now, but, you know, 
the way to become a data scientist was basically to call yourself a data scientist and then you were one. And so, you know, my first actual data science job, I went in it for an interview. Uh, this is at a startup. I was a second employee. The CEO brought in a printout of a SQL query and showed it to me and said, do you understand this? And I looked at it and I said, yes, yes, I do. And he's like, okay, you're hired. Um, so obviously <laughs> that's not how data science interviews work uh, today, um, but that's how they worked uh, back then. Um, and so, you know, I, there I, I led data science at, at a startup called Volumetrics. Wow. I was there for about three years. It's really interesting. You know, another like slice of the time story is that around 2012, I wanted to hire some junior data scientists um, to help me out. And so I put it out on Craigslist. I guess Craigslist was the way to hire people then. I don't think it is anymore. But they basically said, I want to hire like a junior data scientist, you know, must know some math, no experience required. And it's the hardest time finding candidates. And like today, if you put a sign like that out there, you'd be trampled. Um, but I just had the hardest time finding people who were interested and wanted to apply. Um, so, you know, obviously things have changed over then. Um, Volumetrics uh, was a company that did analytics on enterprise collaboration data. So looking at uh, who emails whom, who meets with whom, how often, what topics, and using that to produce reports uh, and analytics about how well the company is functioning, how are people spending their time on the right things, things like that. And so there the data science was the was the project or was the product. And so because of that, um, I ended up writing a lot of code that went into the product, which was probably not a great thing for the company, but uh, I found that I really liked it. And so I decided that I wanted to uh, learn more about, you know, writing good code and how to build software and things like that. Um, so I did a, you know, another kind of pivot into software engineering, went to Google where, you know, I, I was just not a data scientist, not a machine learning person, just a pure software engineer. And I did that for a couple of years and I learned a ton and it was super boring. And so then again, I left and, and I went to the Allen Institute uh, where I, I kind of found a, a role as a research engineer, uh, which was sort of like really sitting at the intersection of software engineering and machine learning. Uh, so it was my job to make sure that the um, researchers were actually like writing good code and that they were implementing their models correctly and that they were, you know, doing good experiments. And so that's a little bit where I kind of got the bug for, you know, why data scientists and why machine learning people should really care about software engineering best practices, um, which has kind of been, you know, obviously a, a theme of mine for the past five years or so. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I spent about four years there. I, I helped build, design and build the Allen NLP library for doing deep learning and NLP. Um, and then about two years ago, I, I left and joined Capital Group where, where I lead a team uh, that focuses again on machine learning, NLP, AI type stuff related to the investment process. So. That is one hell of an intro, bio, background, everything. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, uh, it's not every day that we get such a colorful, you've, it seems like you've done it all. And I love what you were talking about in, what was it, 2011, 2012? The way to become a data scientist was just to call yourself a data scientist. I think we're going to probably make a quote out of that one. And also... <laughs> That you were looking well, for think, candidates on Craigslist. Yeah, it's, it sounds a lot like what it's like to be a, a machine learning engineer in like 2017. Just call yourself a machine learning engineer. And now in 2021 and 2022, call yourself an MLOps engineer, right? Exactly. <laughs> just learn, That's the way to do it. just sell and smoke. Yeah. So th there's one thing that I, I wanted to get to, unless Vishnu has any questions that he wants to follow up on when it comes to your bio and all of that. 
but uh, I think we could probably dive right in to the way that I found you first you know, was through the infamous talk like that you gave. You went to the, what it was it? I thought you went to the Pi Data Conference or no, it was JupyterCon. 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 Yeah. That's it. And you gave a, a talk in the on belly of the beast. <laughs> the cojones on this guy. All right. That is amazing. So would you still give that talk today, being that there's been a lot of tools that have come out to try and solve the problem that you raised? I, I wouldn't give the same talk, but I would give uh, sort of a, an updated version of it, certainly, yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a funny story how that talk came about as well. So when, when I joined uh, Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, you know, we were mostly doing uh, natural language processing stuff. And so at the time, in let's say 2016, Stanford Core NLP was sort of the big NLP library. Um, and that was in Java. And so because of that, AI2 was a Scala shop. And, uh, you know, I was historically more of a Python person, but I can you know, do Scala when someone makes me. Um, but then after I'd been there a year, year and a half, suddenly, you know, the NLP community like turned on a dime and started doing deep learning. And suddenly it was all TensorFlow and PyTorch. Uh, and in particular, it was all Python. Um, and, and so now it, it, it's sort of like, you know, d don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where the puck is is going to be. Uh, well, the, the puck was going to be in Python. And, and so like suddenly I was in high demand within the organization, like, oh, Joel knows a lot of Python. Let's get him to, um, you know, help everyone out who has to make the switch from Scala to Python. So I was helping someone out, um, a, a really senior, really smart software engineer. And she came to me and she said, I'm, I'm so confused by Python. Like, I don't get it. It Like, I'm having so many problems. Um, and she, and I don't understand it. Can you help me? So she came to me. Um, and I had never really thought much about notebooks before this. And and I said, show me what you did. And she brought me this Jupyter notebook that she'd been messing around in. And it turned out that every one of her problems were not caused by Python, were not caused by her misunderstanding of Python, but they were caused by the hidden state in the notebook and that she'd basically gotten it into a place where she was not able to reason about like what her variables had in them, what her code was doing. And so, you know, here, here we have a super, like a really smart person, like a really talented engineer um, who's just like gotten completely confused because of features that are intrinsic to uh, Jupyter Notebooks. Um, and so, I, you know, I went on Twitter, I go on Twitter and I was just, I was, I was frustrated kind of on her behalf. And so I made sort of a very intemperate tweet uh, about how, you know, if anyone wants me to give a talk about like how notebooks are bad and no one should ever use them, uh, <laughs> please invite me because I would love an excuse to write it. Um, and someone at JupyterCon saw the tweet and they, they tweeted back and said, basically, we're not above uh, criticism. Uh, so, you know, if you submit a proposal, we'll, we'll consider it. Um, and then I was like, okay, I'm not really going to do this, but, you know, someone kind of talked me into it uh, right before the deadline. So I, I submitted a proposal um, and then they accepted it. And then I was like, oh gosh, uh, you know, this is the belly of the beast, right? So I, now I'm going to go into a conference for people who are enthusiastic about uh, something and tell them why I don't like that thing. And here's all the problems with that thing. And so I thought, so if I'm going to do this, I better have my ducks in a row. So I better make sure that one, you know, I've thought of every like criticism that's important to me. And two, I better make sure that those aren't things that are actually addressed and I'm not just being dumb for, for not, not knowing how to solve them. 
So I actually spent like an enormous amount of time researching and writing that talk, probably more time than I've ever spent on a talk. Um, and then I went there and I gave it and it was, you know, uh, I think it was mostly fair, right? Like, so yes, it was kind of a, a polemic and yes, you know, I, I made it funny and everything, but, but, but I do feel like my criticisms were fair and were reasonable. And so because of that, I think, uh, so I think a couple things happened. One, uh, it was reasonably okay received at the conference and two, uh, what happened and I feel a little bit bad about this is it caused a little bit of a preference cascade um, mm. where it turned out there are a lot of people who never liked notebooks, but they never said anything because they thought they were the only one. And then all these people, some of them like really prominent in the data science community came out uh, when my talk got published and they're like, oh yeah, I agree with this. I don't like notebooks either. And and I, I think, you know, the Jupiter people who, who are all very nice, um, I think they're a little bit taken aback by all these people kind of coming out of the woodwork all at once and, and sort of like, you know, joining in this pylon. So I, I, I do feel bad about that, but. They didn't throw tomatoes at you though and they didn't boo you off the stage so that's <laughs> they did not yeah yeah i mean i i certainly think that the talk was you know more than fair hilarious but also more than fair you know it was you know you talked about um you know the the reality of, of why they're useful you know they have the interactivity they, they present a low lift you know to get started with something um, but you're right well, the more you use them the the paradox is is the more difficult they get to use in a sense, right? Because of that hidden state and because of the, you know, line by line execution and, and all those things that, that complicate the process of working with notebooks. So you gave that talk in, in 2018 uh, and it was quite interesting. And now we are three years later and sometimes it feels like the conversation hasn't really moved that far past it. You know, in our community, a lot of times we have long threads uh, from people all over the world saying, okay, you know, we're at the point, we have a couple data scientists, they're all in notebooks, but we want to start, you know, scheduling jobs and 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 create a more sophisticated machine learning process. It's 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 funny how that happened a few years ago, but we're still in the in the overall, I guess, zeitgeist still at the same point. Would you agree with that sort of discussion? Or have you seen work that makes you feel that, you know, maybe we have better tooling around no notebooks that people could take better advantage of? So, so there's a couple things. Um, there, there is some better tooling that, that make things like, uh, you know, code review and, you know, source control and things like that easier. Um, do they remove all the friction there or do they move, remove enough friction there? That uh, I'm not sure. Um, but, but certainly, you know, people are trying to address like some of the problems I called out. Um, at the same time, people are also trying to in invent around this, right? So, you know, one use case that, you know, was prominent for um, notebooks is, hey, I want to give someone a way to interactively, you know, play with this model, right? Well, now we have other tools like Streamlit, uh, where you can, here, I'm just going to, you know, write some Python code, and it's going to give me a web app that exposes my model, and then I don't even have to mess with notebooks. And if my goal of using a notebook was to give people an interactive way of seeing how this model works or feeding inputs or things like that, then I don't need notebooks for that. Similarly, um, you know, I, and I, I apologize, I forgot the name of the company, but 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 I saw them uh, recently, and they basically developed what was kind of a, a, a notebook alternative. It's still a notebook, I think, but it uses a fully reactive kernel. So uh, what that means is it builds a, you know, a 
DAG uh, directed acyclic graph of all its cells, right? And so when you change a cell, it knows what cells depend on that cell and it automatically updates them. So there's no way, uh, and I, I can look it up afterwards and, and hopefully find them. Um, I haven't tried it, but, but I saw them on Twitter. Um, but then that you know mostly eliminates the hidden state problem in that if you change a value somewhere, everything that it depends on um, changes. And in fact, when I was at JupyterCon, there was a, they had a poster session um, and someone at the poster session had basically as an experiment built a fully reactive kernel for Jupyter uh, where it, you know when you made a change to a cell, it would basically rerun the notebook you know from that point on. Um, and I, I tried to get them to buy the bullet that that's how notebooks should work and they, they didn't agree with me, but. Yeah, was that tool Hex? That sounds, uh, that sounds right. Yeah, I think it might be Hex. Hex is cool. Hex is really cool. And I, I really agree with your point, I think around, and I like the way you framed it, which is that other tools are coming in to address, you know, almost, you could call it unbundling the notebook, right? Like all the things that we do with the notebook, you know, you can, you can pull it out. I know Demetrius knows that this is a favorite phrase of mine, unbundling the X thing. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, makes a lot of sense when you put it that way. One question that I kind of have is, you know, we, um, right now in the overall data engineering and data science world, it feels like we're going through a little bit of a uh, step function evolution in the sense that there's this idea of the modern data stack um, more consumers of data exists in organizations than before. So there are tools like high touch and, and other tools that I'm not even familiar with uh, that are taking data outside of the centralized data team and making it available more easily than ever before. Um, you know, we have new sort of like data engineering tools that are helping with orchestration. And then you also have data tools that are helping with the more intensive workflows like machine learning, right? And I say all of this to kind of say and kind of get your perspective on as somebody that has been at sort of every step of the data science journey, right? You've done data and your business intelligence, you've done data science, you've done software engineering, and now you're doing machine learning engineering. You know, where do you think, you know, some of the most interesting um, greenfield opportunities are in the context of this new uh new data stack, right? Like what are the things that are really interesting to you um, in your current job right now? So uh, I'm in a bit of a funny spot in my current job in that my organization, uh, one, we're really all in on AWS um, and two, because we're a financial you know, investments company, um, we're extremely security conscious. Um, and so because of that, uh, you know, I don't have as many opportunities as I would if, if I were at a startup to sort of like take a broad look and say, what is the best tool, you know, out there for, for my problem? Uh, I'm relatively more constrained to what are the tools that, you know, the security team has, uh, has said that we're allowed to use basically. Um, and that tends to be very standard uh aws type stuff so that means that you know we have a lot of workflows you know within my team that are really based off of you know lambda functions uh SageMaker endpoints um message queues things like that that are like on one hand they're bespoke and on the other hand they're bespoke using 
relatively standard like platform as a service pieces. Um, and, and so, you know, that's that's most of what my team has been doing from a kind of data engineering slash ML ops perspective. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I have this sense that there's like all this great stuff out there and it, it's sort of, you know, a, a world that's not available to me uh, today. No, I, I totally feel that, you know, I work at a GCP shop, um, you know, we're completely built on top of it. And it's nice actually to, to, you know, sit within a particular tool stack and kind of feel like, okay, <laughs> this is my world. <laughs> it's my island and there's ocean all out there, but I can't, I can't swim yet. <laughs> um, yep. And, and it does help with speed a lot. And, you know, in that context, you know, you guys are leveraging AWS heavily. You mentioned Lambda, SageMaker, et cetera. I kind of want to zoom in on this idea of MLOps in particular, right? How yep. your company is practicing MLOps. And, you know, one thing that you mentioned, you know, in, in your focus areas for your job right now is that you focus a lot on, you know, building your team and nurturing talent. So yep. how do you think about the different, kinds of professionals that are required for your organization to practice MLOps? Yeah, so I'm in a little bit of a funny spot and then I was brought, I was hired in to basically bring machine learning to a part of the organization that was, um, you know, module of this AWS restriction, relatively greenfield from a technology perspective, um, but also not really doing much in the ML space. So, so that meant that, you know, any ML ops that I needed uh, for the most part, I had to invent or build as I went. It wasn't there waiting for me. So now I have a team of me and four other people. You know, things are really kind of broken out um, a little bit more siloed than I'd like. I have one person who's who's a real expert on AWS stuff and AWS infrastructure, how to build things in AWS. Uh, you know, I have one person who's who's very you know NLP savvy and knows a lot about how to you know train and use NLP models. I have one person who has a very deep experience in search and search relevance uh, and Elasticsearch. And so he works on a lot of that stuff. And then I have one more junior person who is sort of trying to learn all across that stack. And then I also sort of, you know, have to learn all across that stack. So, um, you know, I would love to cross train them more, but I think, you know, given the state I'm in, uh, I very heavily need the, the AWS expert to, to tell me, you know, this is how we should be architecting this one piece of our, of our stack and so on. But, you know, really, uh, we've spent, I've been a capital group about two years and, and really a lot of those two years have been spent just building out relatively simple infrastructure so that we're finally in a position where now we can train models, we can deploy models, we can serve models, things like that. But there, there was like a lot of investment uh, around, you know, both data engineering as well as the MLOps side of uh, how do we, once we've trained a model, how do we deploy it? How do we monitor it, et cetera, et cetera. How did you go about evaluating that? Because I know a lot of people that come into the community are in that stage more or less, uh, or maybe a little more advanced, but the evaluation process is super difficult, right? Like finding out what's the best for your use case, just trying to figure out what the landscape looks like and how to go about it. Was it again like, hey, well, we're constrained to using AWS, so we're just going to use what we've got and we have a few conversations with the DevSecOp guys and they say, this is what you can use, this is what you can't use, or, or what did you do? 
that's that's really pretty close to the truth. Uh, I mean, you know, the the basic setting is that you know we have a bunch of data sitting in S3 somewhere, um, and we need to take that raw data and process it into a form we can use. Okay, well that's uh, pre-processing is going to be um, with a lambda function, and so we need to set up notifications so that we know when there's more data to transform it. And then you know, okay, now we want to train a machine learning model on it. Well, you know, basically, the the security people said you when you want if you want to train a, uh, a machine learning model, your choices are SageMaker and SageMaker. So you know that that made it real easy. Um, and I actually spent so SageMaker has an API where like they have a bunch of algorithms and. I, I, not the way I like to work. They also have a, they call it bring your own algorithm, where you supply them a Docker image that uh, corresponds to a not heavily documented spec, but it needs to, you know, do certain things and, and serve certain things at certain ports and respond to certain data in certain ways. So we spent, you know, a big chunk of time, you know, reverse engineering that and then, you know, coming up with some abstractions that allowed us to fit our workflows into that model. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, right now we're looking into the SageMaker has this SageMaker feature store. So someone on my team is evaluating that and, and, you know, hopefully that will work for our needs and we'll implement that as well. Actually, uh, that's funny that you say that just before I see Vishnu wants to jump in, but there is something to be said for that. And, Oh, now I just forgot what I was going to say because I thought about Vishnu, jump, how I cut Vishnu off. All right, well, Vishnu, you go ahead. And then if I can remember what I was going to say, I'll say it later. Is it about the SageMaker bring your own algorithm? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. So it, it's, it was just a quick comment on how SageMaker can get you. We've heard this quite a bit. It can get you 80% of the way there. But then if you ever want to tinker with things, you end up taking so long to try and make that extra five or 10% that you're trying to get out of it really work. Has that been your experience too? No, but only because of the way I approached it, right? Like I said, I looked at the SageMaker inference API and said, I, I don't feel comfortable assuming that every model I'm ever gonna wanna use fits into that API, right? So therefore I don't wanna couple myself to that API. So therefore I am going to use this bring your own algorithm mode from the start. Um, and basically once I figured out how that mode works, because again, it wasn't like perfectly documented, um, for the most part, I don't, I haven't felt like it's constrained the way we do things. I mean, it's constrained the way we do things, but I don't think there's like an extra 20% that we can't get to because of SageMaker. It's more that we had to spend a lot of time up front, you know, basically fitting our work into that bring your own algorithm mode. And now that we've done that, um, it, it's it, it's not that different from, you know, if I had a bare EC2 instance and I was just writing my own code anyway. Um, I, I just need to, you know, respect uh, one, here is what the machine that runs your Docker image is going to call it with. And two, here is the format in which data is going to be fed into your um, into your training algorithm, basically. Yeah, that is a really interesting point. And what I want to flag there is that, and I'm assuming, you correct me if I'm wrong, that this came from your experiences at the Allen Institute as a research engineer and potentially even Google, but you understood upfront 
that the first model that we're going to build is not our last. Therefore, the you know how we go about the process of building out our machine learning platform and process needs to support kind of um, it needs to be flexible, right? Because I think in my experience, what what you know some of the traps I've gotten caught in, caught up in is is you know you're, you're rushing to push out your first model, you end up taking some some bad practices in terms of code review or using notebooks a little bit too aggressively, and then you kind of look back and you're like, well, damn, we can't really use that code as much as we want to, and it's not as flexible as we thought. Um, is that, is that, is, is my surmise there correct? Yeah. So I would say less Google, but more, uh, AI too. Um, so, so there's a, there's a couple things going on there. One is that if you ever look at the Allen NLP, uh, library, uh, which as I mentioned, is a deep learning library for doing NLP, it's a very opinionated library and it, it enforces a certain structure on your code. Um, and so that really like, uh, shaped the way that I think about you know, writing machine learning code and, and designing machine learning experiments. Um, and, and so uh, this library we built, it's called CG Maker because it's the capital group library on top of SageMaker. Uh, that's a clever naming thing that I did. Nice. But anyway, uh, this CG Maker library, um, it basically, if you looked at it, you say, oh, that looks like Allen NLP in, in some ways. It has some of the same abstractions and it represents the same sort of thinking. So, you know, that was one piece. The second piece, which is also a big thing, uh, you know, from Allen NLP, is that um, when I am starting with a new kind of model, um, I want to iterate quickly. And I want to iterate quickly basically by training it locally um, against a very small data set, right? So, you know, if I, if I have a data set with 10 examples and I train my model on that locally and it, it trains, then I can feel confident that, okay, my model's doing the right thing. It's, it's dealing with data correctly and so on. And then I can go off and like say, hey, cloud, you know, run this against this giant data set. Um, and that's a much faster and safer way for me to sort of iterate an experiment than if, you know, I type some code, build a Docker image, run it in the cloud. Okay, there's a syntax error, like whatever. Um, and, and so what, the other thing that I thought is that, it, and it's possible that there's solutions to this that I don't know about, but I thought if I'm using these, you know, SageMaker APIs that are basically, you know, SageMaker.classifier.train or whatever, um, can I actually run these locally um, as easily as I can run them, you know, in the cloud? And I didn't see a way to do that. It's possible I didn't look hard enough. And so this other method where basically I have a Docker image that encapsulates the training of my model. Well, that's, I can run Docker images locally. I can run them in SageMaker. I could even in theory run them on an EC2 instance. And so that gives me a little bit more flexibility to, you know, iterate, uh, on small data sets locally. And, and so that was also something that was important as part of the design process. So I'm gonna change gears here real fast and ask you, considering your experience and where you're working now, do you have any hot takes on the data science world or data scientists as we see them in the year 2021? Um, any hot takes? Um, I don't know. It seems like everyone wants to be a data scientist now. Um, uh, it's, it's sort of amazing to me that there's colleges that you can major in data science because, you know, here's this field that didn't exist 10 years ago and that I don't really think of as a academic field. But, you know, now there's a department of data science. There's master's degrees in data science. And, you know, if, if, if I wanted to be really cynical, I, I would look at those as, you know, mostly money grabs. But, um, 
even if I didn't want to be cynical, I probably would uh, as well. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think, you know, uh, I'm not in the camp uh, of people who think that, gosh, data science is just going to be automated away and there's no room for people to do this. Um, I, I, I think there's always going to be room for people to do this. Uh, you know, at the same time, you know, w what are the skills that are going to be needed? You know, a long time ago, probably five, six, seven years ago, um, I was very, uh, I was very explicit that I thought that data science as a standalone field was going to go away, and that uh, essentially what what we now call machine learning engineers was going to kind of subsume the field. Um, I think I was wrong about that. It hasn't happened, and I don't really see much sign of it happening. If anything, it's kind of you know split into two different things. So you know, I think there'll always be a need for data scientists, but I do you know. I do believe that data scientists should try and be more like software engineers. Um, I do think that data scientists should think of their um, code as production code and that they there is a lot they can learn from software sharing best practices. And, and so because of that, I'm personally skeptical of data scientists who don't think of themselves uh, that way. You know, I have this joke, uh, you know, the data scientist who says, you know, oh, um, I'm not writing production code. This is just, you know, code for, you know, doing analytics. Uh, and and uh, I said, well, what are the analytics for? And I said, and they say, oh, well, they're used to make business decisions. Uh, I said, okay, well, that sounds a lot like production code to me because you're basically, you know, sh shipping a decision to, you know, your business. So, uh, so yeah, so that's kind of, that's maybe my hottest take, but it's it's also an old take. So I've been saying that for years. Still useful, still useful to get your thoughts on it. I think that there are a lot of people, um, you know, maybe stemming from some of the discussion about notebooks and data science tooling in general, who think that, you know, data science will be automated away or that, you know, uh, that, the, that the profession as a whole is, is not really as important. Um, but it's, it's good to get your thoughts that, you know, it is still. And I, I agree because, you know, that intuition around data, um, the, re you know, the, the research, the digging into it, that'll never really go away you know, as many, you know, automated model training things as we see. And with that, I kind of wanted to ask more about MLOps in particular. And, you know, my, my question kind of stems from, you know, over the past five years, the process of going from data to model to model in production has really changed a lot. You know, with this, the profession of machine learning engineer has really risen in terms of frequency. We see a lot more ML engineers now. Uh, that position kind of has its own niche, right? Which is being that intersection between software engineering and data science that you talked about. Now we're seeing another profession in the sense of an MLOps engineer whose job almost is to, once that model is in production, to keep that model in production, right? And to keep the keep new models coming in and to ultimately allow increased velocity around um, new models in production. My question to you is, where do you think we're at right now in terms of overall maturity in the MLOps field? And where do you think some of the most glaring challenges are um, where, you know, better tooling or process could really help an organization like yours or another? Um, so one, I, I don't, well, speaking for, for my team, we're definitely not very mature in terms of our thinking around this. Um, you know, I think there are opportunities, but but I think part of the challenge is that some of these things are really 
judgment based, you know, in, in other words, okay, I've deployed a model, you know, now I want to somehow track, you know, what kind of predictions is it making in production and at what point, you know, does it need to be retrained? Well, you know, that, that depends, right? And to know when it needs to be trained, to be retrained or, you know, replaced or decommissioned or whatever really requires understanding what is the business problem this model is solving and, you know, what kind of errors is it making um, and, you, you know, how, how would a newer model do? And, and so, you know, on one hand, you can think of, uh, you know, tooling and stuff to help with that and it exists, but at the same time, you, I don't think it's a problem you're ever going to be able to completely tool your way out of um and and so you know my team were sort of we're not even to that point yet right we're still at the point of we need to get these models out there and being used and then you know once they're there then we can start asking some of these kinds of questions um but yeah i i mean the the other thing is that you know i have a small team and uh once we start putting models in production then you know i guess you know we owe someone an sla and uh, we're, we're committed to keeping these models running. And how do we, you know, make sure that they do? Uh, and that's another thing that I'm starting to think about because, you know, we're getting close to that. And I don't think we want to be carrying pagers 24-7. Uh, there's not very many of us, but I, I imagine we probably will be. Yeah, no, I think that, that makes sense. And it leads me now that you mentioned where your team is at and, and what kinds of things you're starting to think about, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the kinds of problems in NLP and search that you are trying to solve from a data science and machine learning standpoint. I recently joined uh, an NLP company and it has been really interesting to be in the um, in this you know sort of subfield at a time when there's so much going on, right? With you know, transformer networks, so, hugging phase, like all kinds of new tools coming out to work specifically with NLP, which can be a little bit more unstructured. Can you give us a little bit of, you know, perspective on what kinds of problems you're trying to solve in the NLP and search realm at, at Capital Group? Yeah, so Capital Group is a, you know, big 90-year-old uh, company. Uh, and the investment process is really, you know, based around deep fundamental research and long-term investing. And so the way that manifests is that you have these portfolio managers and analysts who are really seeking to deeply understand companies and industries and you know politics and economics and talking to management and talking to customers and and really trying to you know deeply understand uh, you know the world and, and so that um, that manifests in terms of a lot of written research and and so it's a culture of you know I'm going to write down today my thoughts on you know, the auto ML industry, and then I'm going to share them with people and then people will comment and we'll discuss them and, and so on. So there's this real culture of, you know, research and discussion around, uh, and especially in particular written research. And, and, and so my team, uh, it's not the only thing we do, but you know, one thing that we spend a lot of time thinking about is uh, search and NLP tools around this corpus of internal research. How do we make it easier for people to find the research they're looking for? How do we make it easier for people to, you know, get, uh, you know, find the, the relevant parts of, of a research document? How do we make it easier for people to, uh, you know, share and, and so on and so forth? And, and, and so because of that, you know, it's a lot of really standard type applications around things like named entity recognition, uh, text classification, 
automated summarization, you know, so on and so forth. Search relevance. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. I think one of the things that I've realized in, in my short time in NLP already has been that, you know, you have this sort of initially unstructured corpus of data and, and a lot of the initial challenge is finding ways to put structures on it, right? In our case with clinical notes, we spend a lot of time thinking about subheadings, uh, different types of different types of data within the text, right? A lab value as opposed to some kind of clinical jargon. And it sounds like that's probably an approach that your team takes as well a lot too, right? Um, less with the particular structure because there tends to be a wide variety in the structure of the documents and it changes over time. Uh, but yes, in terms of, you know, here's like a, a bunch of text and sentences and images and stuff and, and how do we extract from that sort of meaning or, or, or the things we're trying to find. Got it. So one, a challenge that I've seen many companies face, um, not just in NLP, has been, you know, with the probabilistic nature of machine learning systems, you know, as data changes, how do you keep your model iterations and, and just your models um, fresh, right? Yep. How do you approach that problem right now at Capital Group? I know you mentioned that you're, you're, you're looking at, you know, what the future of your MLOps process is, but at, right at this stage, where are you guys at right now um, with that I, challenge? I, I would say right now we're, we're at the stage of pretending like that challenge doesn't exist. Um, so, but, but, but to be fair, if you think about like, um, you know, think about named entity recognition, right? And I want to tell whether, you know, um, something is a, a company in a sense, let's say, right? Um, then, you know, assuming your training data is represents a reasonably representative sample over a long period of time. It's not really the case that the way people talk about companies is that different today than it was, you know, 20 years ago. Like either way, if they say I met with the management of blank, you know, the, the patterns uh, are similar. The company names may be different, but, you know, I think given the way that most of these models take context into account now, I don't think you get that much drift in, in that sort of model. Um, and, and, you know, similarly for, for some of the other things, right? Uh, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't do really sentiment analysis, but you think about like sentiment analysis, right? Um, yes, like language changes over time, but at the same time, you know, if you train a sentiment analysis model over the past, you know, 20 years, then it's probably gonna do okay over the next year. It's not like you're gonna be like, oh gosh, people, you know, people express, you know, positivity in a completely different way now than they did. I mean, it does change and slang does change, but I, I think some of these NLP phenomena maybe change a lot less than, you know, if you were, you know, trying to do mining of like customer behavior or things like that. So there is this theme, as you mentioned earlier in your life, uh, and it is, the production code and best practices, making sure that you infuse those into everything you're doing. And like you said earlier, a data scientist should be ready to write production code. And they can't cop out by saying that this isn't production, this isn't going to production or any of that. I wonder, because of 
one of the Slack channels that we have in the community Slack that is probably the most active is our production code Slack channel. And we talk all about the different ways that you can approach machine learning and how you need to have so many different things in mind when you are putting out a model. And especially if you're coming from the data scientist's background, which you came from, you went from a data scientist to a software engineer afterwards. Well, I mean, I don't think you called it a data scientist, but it was it was basically that, right? And no, I, I did call it a data scientist. Before okay. I was a software engineer, my title was actually data scientist. So. <laughs> All right. That you gave to yourself. That, yes, that, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what it said so, on my business card. So. No, nice. So it, it was true. So, so basically, what I'm wondering about is, let's imagine a data scientist comes to work with you, and I, I can suppose that this has happened before, and you want to instill these best practices into them. What are you telling the data scientists? Like, what are the things that you're saying besides, hey, write production code, but what does that mean? And how can they go deeper on that? Especially for those that are coming at machine learning and ML ops, like so many that I talk to in the community from the data science background. So this is, um, so this is something that I picked up uh, from Google uh, and then have carried through ever since, but I'm extremely serious about code review. So like, I don't care what you're doing on my team. Uh, it gets code reviewed before it gets, you know, checked in, right? Um, and so especially with, you know, either junior people or, um, you know, people who maybe are coming from a tradition that, that doesn't think about writing software that way, um, code review is a way for me uh, to, you know, basically show you, hey, here, I wouldn't have written it this way, here's why. Um, and so I actually spend uh, quite a bit of time doing code reviews. Um, I think they're super valuable and uh, they're sort of my number one way for, for getting people to, you know, buy into this line of thinking. It's funny, I had um, I had someone who joined my team shortly after I joined Capital Group um, and, you know, for the first year he was on my team, you know, I was giving him like really serious code reviews, like, no, no, don't do this, do it this way, et cetera, et cetera. And like after a year of that, you know, he basically had internalized my voice. And so he thought, oh, I was going to do it this way, but I thought you wouldn't like that. So I did it like the right way. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, code review, code review is invaluable. And I actually have a couple questions about how you guys do it. Number yep. one, we asked, a, we asked a lot about what you think about notebooks, but are you using notebooks at Capital Group and your team? Um, not for, not for anything that gets checked into source control. No, um, okay. we are unfortunately because for some really stupid reasons that basically, uh, it's very difficult for me to set up an EC2 instance or it was for a long time, it was very difficult for me to set up a bare EC2 instance. And so the only real way for me to get elastic compute was by using a SageMaker notebooks instance. Um, and so because of that, we ended up using SageMaker notebooks instances for a lot of stuff and you can you know, you can write in a little text editor there and, and so on. It's not a great experience, um, but we're, uh, we're trying to move away from that. Okay. No, that makes sense. I've, I've been there with <laughs> the SageMaker notebook deal. Um, okay. So you're not using notebooks as part of your source, source, source control. So everything is in, um, uh, you know, Python scripts and, and, you know, kind of set up that way. Are yep. you guys following like, you know, some kind of like 
common repo structure that you use for all projects? No, not really. We're we kind of take it on an ad hoc basis. We probably should, but as for now, it's sort of anything goes. Each repo has kind of its own structure. Okay, cool. And in terms of who reviews what code, is it everyone reviews kind of like everyone's code, or is it like you know, is it primarily that you're reviewing your reports code? Like, how does that work? Um, I think what happens is that when people um, are new to the team, I end up doing a lot of their code reviews. Um, obviously, you know, like when I say everyone's code gets reviewed, everyone's code gets reviewed. So, you know, early on, it was me and this very junior person on my team. And when I wrote code, he had to review it because there's no one else to review it, right? And, you know, he, he learned stuff that way too. But I don't, I don't get to check stuff in without a code review because, uh, you know, the, the rules for everyone. But, you know, I, I think the problem has been, and I mentioned this earlier, that my team has ended up working in a very siloed way in that, you know, here's one person who's working on mostly, you know, MLOP stuff. Here's one person who's working mostly on search stuff. And so because of that, I'm, I have been kind of the most natural code reviewer for each of those because I'm the one person who sees across all of them. I, I would rather that not be the case. And so I'm trying to get to a point where, you know, other people can be doing the code reviews because uh, I got other stuff to do. That was actually yeah. something that someone mentioned to me uh, when we were talking about because one of the channels in the MLOps community is like coding pals. And the idea there is that you get matched up randomly with other people in the channel and you have a code review and someone told me like, yeah, but if you don't know the problem they're working on and you don't really know the uh, use case, it's really hard to review someone else's code. And maybe I'm used to working with this and they're working in that. And so it's really difficult. And so I could see that like these little islands of knowledge and how do you bridge those gaps in your company with the code pals, that's just a whole nother level. So I, I think there's two things there, right? There's there's one thing which is, you know, if you give me some Python code, regardless of what it's doing, I can I can tell you, oh gosh, you should have used a list comprehension here, or oh gosh, you should not have used a, a default, you know, a mutable default value for your function argument or things like that. So so there is there is a lot I can do um, in terms of just making things cleaner and more idiomatic and finding sort of obvious bugs. But you're right that, you know, as things get more you know, either domain specific or you're coding against an API, I don't know, or, you know, using some library that I'm not familiar with, then suddenly I, I, I can't be as helpful. Yeah, I think the way I break it up in my head is their style and function, right? And, you know, the initial code review is easy, it's easy to do style and it's always helpful, right? Because style lends itself to readability. Uh, and then function is, um, you know, that's kind of what the problem is. And that's a little bit more context dependent. Yeah, but I, I would I would rather outsource style. I, what I mean is this. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I'll use black for formatting because I don't want to get into formatting. I don't want to think about formatting. Black can worry about formatting. That's that. And then I'm going to use Flake Eight uh, to you know check for style stuff. I I don't use uh, Pilot. I I have some gripes with Pilot, but. Um, we don't need to talk about them, but um, and, and so I want Black and Flake Eight to like take care of as much as they can, right? And then my code review is not about style; it's about, um, I mean, unless you consider like idiomatic stuff style, um, in which case it is a little bit about that. But it's also just about it's more about readability, actually. Like that's the other thing is yeah. that uh, that I took away from Google is um, being 
like hyper focused on readability. And so a lot of my code review is not are not even um, this is wrong or this is you know an incorrect way to write it, but it's like I don't like this function name because it doesn't actually tell you what the function's doing. I wouldn't call the variable this, I would call this other thing because it would make your code 10 times easier to understand. I, I would not write this loop this way because it's super convoluted. I would write this other way because this would make it much clearer what it's actually doing. And so a huge number of my, my code review comments are really that flavor, right? Like, I get what you're doing. Here's how you can make it 10 times more clear and understandable so that when you come back to this in a month or when I come back to it in a month, like we understand what it's doing. I will say you know, that is that makes a ton of sense. And what I will say as a as somebody that's you know a little bit more junior and is on my way and still getting a lot of code review comments is you got to just put it out there, right? Uh, and you got to accept that code review as a cultural value for your team is about getting the best product out and using that as a way of learning. That's the way to actually I find to leverage code review the right way. It's not it's not to just look at a finished product and and. And, and check it in, right? And the less comments you get, the better. Actually, maybe do it a little bit earlier so that you can actually get the comments, you understand the way people think, and ultimately your long-term learning will be will, will be better. That's kind of the way I've started to approach it, which was a little bit of a change for me. Um, and so I think, you know, the last question I kind of had on this, this code review topic overall, because um, we're coming up on time here, is just, it's actually going back to the comment you made about the silos in your team. And do you find that remote work has made that more challenging, especially given the fact that people aren't in the same, you know, location and maybe, you know, the AWS person is talking to the search person in the office or have you guys solved that? My team is a funny beast in that um, I was in the Seattle office. Now I'm in San Antonio. Um, one person on my team is in London. Two people on my team are in Los Angeles and one person on my team is in Irvine. So like, even if we were all in the office, you would only have like two of us in the same place. Um, and so because of that, even before COVID, well, I mean, independent of COVID, my team is kind of remote first in essence, just because we're, we're totally distributed. Um, and so, you know, like the idea of having us all in the same office is like not even, you know, on my radar, right? So, so by necessity, we kind of, treat everything virtual first and, you know, heavy use of Slack and, you know, heavy use of GitHub and everything. Got it. Got it. I was just curious because I think, you know, teams that were uh, in person that shifted to remote struggle with it maybe a little bit more. I certainly feel like, you know, that is a challenge that I've had to confront is like, how do you do remote right? Because you got yeah. it. Um, and with that, I think that's about all we have today. Thank you so much for joining us, Joel. So many great lessons just about the practical challenges of, of implementing machine learning. Uh, love talking to you about notebooks. And as always, your sense of humor was hitting today. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This has been a fun conversation. Demetrius, any last words? Yeah, as always, wherever you're listening to us, if it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give it a, a subscribe if you haven't already. And that's all we've got. If you're not in our Slack, you can check out the description to get in it because we mentioned it quite a bit in this conversation. Also, all of the other good stuff that we mentioned in this conversation, we're gonna throw into that description so you can see what that tool was that Joel couldn't remember the name of. And you can also see his talk that we referenced quite a few times or his book. And that's all we've got today. Thanks for tuning in.